moment to dismiss our children who are fourth grade and under to head upstairs for kids crew worship. This is a time of worship designed specifically for these kids where they will engage with the stories of the Bible and do a deeper study of the very same story that they learned in our Sunday school time this morning, if they were here for Sunday school. As they're making their way upstairs, I wanna just say what a great job they did when they sang earlier as well. Uh, yeah, we can clap for that to let them know. You know, it's really neat. Of course, we're, we, they, they walked in carrying the, the palm branches because it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday was the Sunday before Easter when Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And as he entered into the city, people shed their cloaks. They shed their outer garments. They laid them on the ground. They took up palm branches and they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us now, God. It was a recognition in that moment that they saw prophecy fulfilled. They saw in that moment, Jesus as the Messiah, the one who had come into the city to fulfill the promise of God. And so in doing what they were doing is literally they were fulfilling the prophecy. The people knew they were anticipating and waiting for that moment. And they cried, Hosanna, save us now, God. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus had come to do. It's exactly what he did, offering his life merely a few days later for the forgiveness of sin. And yet Jesus wasn't the savior that they anticipated. He was an even greater savior, of course, but he, he didn't establish the earthly kingdom that they were looking for, the kingdom of David. Instead, we understand that Jesus established a, a heavenly kingdom, a, a spiritual kingdom of sorts, not a kingdom of this earth, not a kingdom made of hands, but a kingdom that reigns and rules in our hearts. And in fact, that's the very scripture that I want us to study together this morning. Second Samuel chapter seven. So if you'll turn in your Bibles to second Samuel chapter seven, we are working our way through the message of the Bible this year. And we've provided a Bible reading plan for you to follow along with all along the way. I hope that you're doing that. If you're not, we'd encourage you to get a copy of that plan and jump in. You can actually go to our website at fbcchickasha.org and there on our website, if you navigate to the page where our messages live, okay? And so it's just messages or sermons, you navigate to that page and there's a link there to a Bible reading plan that you can follow along with as we are working our way through the Bible. And we come to this particular passage of text in 2 Samuel chapter seven. This is taken from this week's readings. If you're following along then this last week in the middle of the week, we read 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this morning, as we study and dig into 2 Samuel 7, what we're going to see is ultimately it's the, the, the picture of uh, the, what we call the Davidic covenant. And so let me explain what I mean by that. Davidic, meaning just that it's David, right? You, you hear the word David even in that title, Davidic. And the covenant means that it is, it is a, a promise. It's a, it's a covenant established between God and, and through David, who was to be the mediator of this covenant. Through David, it was a covenant that would extend to the entire nation of Israel. That as God's chosen people, as a royal priesthood, as the, the nation who was meant to reflect the goodness of God and, and, and show and shine the goodness of God to the whole world so that through Israel, all the nations of the world might be blessed, that, that through David, its king, God would provide a future king and a dynasty that would extend for all time. 
Now, what Israel, the nation of Israel, thought that that mean, what David understood that to mean, what others understood that to mean at that time, was that it, was a, it would be a literal kingdom, with a literal king, which is why in, uh, in the Gospels, when we read about Jesus entering into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it's why people cried out, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in it. They understood Jesus in that moment as fulfilling that prophecy. Of course, he was not in the way that they anticipated, we understand, but he was in a way that we would say supersedes, that even goes well beyond what they expected. He wasn't the, the conquering, victorious general on the back of the, the white horse. He was the humble servant king plodding along on the back of a donkey. And yet, nonetheless, what he would do would be to establish a kingdom that would reign and rule forever. And someday we will see the, the final consummation of the kingdom that was established in, in glory and in, in Jesus' second coming. But even in that, we see this fulfillment of God's promise. And, and I want us to connect those dots this morning as we read together, as we dig into 2 Samuel. So we're going to read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read all the way through verse 17 together. This is where God speaks to David through Nathan and establishes the covenant. And then in, we'll come back in, in, after we do some, some deeper study and we'll look a little bit at David's response in verses 18 and the verses that follow. Let's begin in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, which is to say after David had ruled for some time and then David had all, he had built a, he had built a palace, he had subdued his enemies. So, so David has seen some success. We read in verse two, the king said to Nathan, the prophet, see now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the names of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul 
whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. So here's the situation, right? David has had some success in his, in his reign, in his rule. His, he's had a successful, a successful time in establishing now the kingdom of Israel. Now, if, you, if you've done the reading, you know that that didn't happen overnight. In fact, David ruled for seven years over the house of Judah before ultimately he ascended to the throne over the house of all Israel. And during that same time, those first seven years, there was another, there was a son of Saul who ruled over that, the northern ten tribes, or what we would refer to as just the, the, the greater nation of Israel. But then, at, at the appropriate time, according to all that God had planned, the kingdom was united, fully united, under David's rule. And its borders expanded. They saw success. David built a house here, which is to say a palace, right? A house of cedar, which cedar in those days was, was a sign of, of, of luxury, a sign of wealth. It was an expensive material and, and, and considered to be a, a valuable asset, a valuable material. And so to say that David has a house of cedar is in effect, I mean, it literally would have been made of cedar, but in effect, it's a way of saying that he had a grand palace. He's, he's got some really nice digs that have been built for, for his, his, the seat of his rule, the seat of his authority. And David looks out from the balcony, the porch, as it were, of his palace, and he sees the tabernacle, the tent of God. And David thinks to himself, well, it's not right that I should live in this grand house and that the ark of God, the ark of the covenant, should, should dwell in this tabernacle. And so I'm going to build, I'm going to build a great temple, a great house to, to place the ark in. He shares the plans with Nathan. Nathan gives him the instruction in verse three, go do all that's in your heart. The Lord be with you. But then God appeared to Nathan and he instructs Nathan to go back to David and, and basically say to, to David, did I ask you to do this? Did I ask you to build me a temple? Did I ask you to build a place for the ark to dwell? Is, does not the ark dwell in the place that I've instructed? And so God, he rebukes David in a sense through the word of Nathan. But then, of course, there's an even greater part of this vision that is to come, this vision from Nathan communicated to David because God speaks a word to David here establishing an, an everlasting covenant between himself and David. Now, we understand, and we're even going to see some other scriptures this morning that, that help us to know, we understand that there is both a, a, an immediate fulfillment of these promises, but also in a, in a in a much greater way, a far greater, a far everlasting promise. So when God is, promises to David that I'm going to establish you and your, and, and your sons and your heirs beyond you, he means that literally, right? That would literally happen. But also, metaphorically, of course, he's speaking of something that would come, another who was to come. 
in the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, the writers of the Gospels go to great lengths to list the genealogy of Jesus because what they're doing is they're connecting the dots for us. They're helping us to understand that this Jesus was the one that God promised. He was the Messiah. He was the chosen one. He was the true heir of David who would be appointed to reign and rule forever just as God promised. It's the fulfillment of God's promise. And that's what I want us to see this morning. Ultimately, that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, the ultimate fulfillment of God's promise. And so in order for us to understand that, let's, let's look a little deeper at this covenant that God establishes with David. Now, in particular, in the covenant that God makes with David, we see three key parts to this covenant. Three key things that the Lord promises to establish through David in this covenant promise. The first is a kingdom or a house. In verse 11, right, we read that the Lord says that the Lord will make you a house. Now, he's not talking there about a literal house. This isn't God saying, David, I'm going to build you a place to live. No, what he's saying is I'm going to establish a kingdom, a house, the house of David, as it might be called, which is still the way that we talk about dynasties today, right? That's still the way, that's the kind of language we still use when we refer to a kingdom or a royal family. We refer to them as the house of whatever it might be, right? Well, in this sense, this is to be the house of David, but it's through the house of David, it's through the line of David that God would provide ultimately his Messiah, which was the second part of the promise, that the Lord promises that I will, I will provide for you a son. In the next verse, we read in verse 12, when you lie down with your fathers, that's a euphemism, a way of saying when you're dead, when you're gone, I will establish, or rather, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. So in other words, this is a promise to David, not only that God would establish the kingdom for David, give David rule and reign over, over the kingdom, but also that his heirs would continue to reign. Now, that, if, you, if you know the story, you know that this is a shift. This is a break from what has happened. David is only the second king to reign over the nation Israel. The first was Saul, but David was not Saul's son, so, so Saul didn't get to live in the fulfillment of this promise. Saul did not have his sons, his heirs, who would continue with his name and, and their sons and their heirs and on and on. But that's, pre, that's a, precisely what God is promising to David here. But we understand that there's an even greater fulfillment of this promise as well. Not just that God would send a son or raise up a son, but that he would send ultimately his son. Look at verse 16. What did we read in verse 16? And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. How is it that David's house and his kingdom would be made sure forever? Well, it would be through, it would be through a continual, the continual reign, the continual rule. And yet, if you follow along historically, you know that if you just were to follow the lineage of David, that, that it stops. 
Yes, there were kings who ruled in, in the lineage of David for, for centuries beyond David's lifetime, but eventually David's physical heirs no longer sat along, upon the throne. And in fact, for, for centuries, there wasn't a visible nation of Israel. There is today, it was established post-World War II, but prior to that, for centuries, Israel didn't even, it didn't even exist as an actual nation. So if this was the promise of God that was meant to have a literal fulfillment, then God failed somehow. But because we know that the, the promise here is not ultimately literal, but rather pointing to a different king and a different kingdom, which is why we see this fulfilled in Jesus, by the way. And because we know that to be true, then we can look at Jesus and we can say, yes, Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise. Jesus is the one that God sent to reign and rule forever. It is another way that we see God keeping his word, keeping his promise. And so he provides a kingdom. He provides a son, literally his son. In fact, if you were to study in the Gospels, the, the most common name that's given for Jesus in the sense of his title is he's the, he's the son of David. He's the son of David. Because the writers of the Gospels understood that Jesus was the son. He was the one that fulfilled this promise. But third, God promises here a dynasty. A dynasty. Now, why would that be important? Again, in verse 13, he says, He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. His throne would continue forever. Again, in verse 16, your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So his dynasty, his reign, his rule would extend for all of time. Why is that? Well, again, because it's pointing us to, it's pointing us to the forever reign of Christ. That Christ's authority and his rule of his kingdom, there shall be no end. The prophet Isaiah tells us as much, right? The prophet Isaiah tells us of the, the one who would come and that he would be called the wonderful counselor, the prince of peace, the mighty God, the everlasting father. And of his throne, there would be no end, Isaiah prophesies, because he's, he's speaking this word. He's fulfilling or he's showing rather how Jesus fulfills the promise of God. What we see in this covenant with David, you even have this in your notes. This is a point that I've, I've given you in your notes, is that each of these promises anticipates a future Messiah, Jesus. Each of these promises anticipates the future Messiah. The Messiah was a title that meant the anointed one. That's literally what Messiah means, is anointed. The anointed one of God. Jesus was God's anointed. Jesus was God's chosen one. He was the Messiah that God sent to fulfill his promise. And so in him, in Jesus, ultimately, all of God's promises are fulfilled. They're ultimately fulfilled, which is why we read in the New Testament, for example, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, don't think that I have come to, to, uh, to, to throw away the law and the prophets, but rather to fulfill them. Jesus understood, and Jesus taught his followers, his disciples, I have come to fulfill the promise of God. 
In, in the letters, Paul writes to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes that in him, in Jesus, all of God's promises find their yes, which is another way of saying, it's another way of saying that God's promises are ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. So that when we look at the promise made to David, it's a promise that God would send a savior who would rule, who would establish a kingdom that would never end. And praise God, that's exactly what he did when he sent Jesus. Now let's, let's back up just a little bit again to draw the connection between this promise, this covenant, and today being Palm Sunday. So in the prophets, as we go on to read, we, we arrive to the, the prophets and uh, in the prophets, we read that the Savior would come and that he would come entering into the city and that he would enter through the eastern gate. And so they were waiting for, they were waiting for this chosen one of God who would come, who would enter through the eastern gate. And on this day, on this Sunday, the first day of the week before the Passover, Jesus comes riding into the city. The people see him riding and they and they, they take off their outer garments and they lay them on the ground. They gather up palm leaves and branches and, and they, they begin to wave them in the air. Again, a sign of, a fulfillment of the, the promise, the, the very words spoken in the prophets. And they cry out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of our God. Hosanna meaning save us now, God. It was a recognition but what they expected Jesus to do on that day was to enter into the city and to use his power and his might and his strength to overthrow the ruling Roman authorities and to establish a literal kingdom and to unite the people, the nation together and to strengthen their army that God would lead them as he did in the day of David to conquer their enemies. And yet that's not at all what happened. What do we read in the Gospels takes place? Jesus instead enters into the city. He goes to the temple and he cleanses the temple. And he, and he turns over the tables and he runs out the money changers and, and he says, my house is to be a house of prayer. And, and, and Jesus talks about, talks about the very temple itself. And he says that you'll tear this temple down, but I'll rebuild it in three days, which they saw as blasphemous. Jesus comes and, and he, begins to, he begins to cleanse and purify and speak a word of truth. The Messiah was there. The Messiah was among them, but he wasn't the king that they expected. He wasn't the king they were looking for. Instead, he was really in so many ways a greater king, a greater king. So much of the time, we miss what God is doing because it doesn't fit what we want. It doesn't fit somehow with our preconceived ideas of what the Lord ought to do. Am I right? So much of the time we miss what God is up to and what God is doing because we want to be God, because we want to dictate terms. We want to be the ones that says, Lord, this is how you should work, and this is when you should do it, and this is the way that it should look, and this should, and, and really what we're doing is we're making ourselves God in that sense. 
And when we, when we try to utilize Jesus in this way, what we do is we use Jesus as a means towards some greater blessing. Yes, I will trust in Jesus so long as he provides this. Yes, I will trust in Jesus so long as my health is good, so long as my marriage is good, so long as I've got a job, so long as we have money, so long as our kids do what is right, so long as things are going well. Yes, I'll trust the Lord. Yes, I'll live in obedience. Yes, I'll follow him. so long as things are operating in the way that I think that they should. But the real test of our faith comes when we don't get our way. The real test of our faith comes when things don't happen according to our plan or our agenda or our timeline. That's where faith really shows itself. Was your faith in you? Was your faith in what you wanted? Or was your faith truly in the Lord and his plan and his purpose for your life. And that's what we see in the unfolding story of Israel here. They were good with Jesus being the Messiah and the Savior until he wasn't the Savior that they wanted. And then they were ready for a new king, a different king. And the truth is, sadly, many of us are still living in that same way. Jesus isn't a means to some greater blessing. Jesus is the blessing. And all the other blessings and all the other things that the Lord does is a means to lead us to Jesus. The fulfillment of God's promise, the fulfillment of God's word spoken for us. Jesus, the one who comes to save us. And so God speaks this word of covenant to David. And you might think, well, what was David's response? Because David had it in his heart to build the Lord a temple. And effectively, what God says here in this promise is, no, David, you won't build a temple for me. I'm going to raise up your son. I'm going to raise up your heir to build a temple for me. David didn't get to do what he had it in his heart to do. God had another plan. Or or we might just say it simply, David didn't get his way. And so what was David's response when he didn't get his way? Well, that's what we read in verse 18. David's response was was humility and, and worship. Look at what what we read in verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me thus far? Now, something really important in that verse before we move on. Notice that it says, And David went in and sat before the Lord. Even that reflects a posture of humility. That David's response before the Lord is to humble himself, is to bow him, to sit himself down and say, all right, Lord, if this is what you're doing, if you're in this, if this is your work, if this is your word, then who am I? Who am I that you have done all of these things that you would bless me, that you would, verse 19, and yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. In other words, God, you're, this is a sign of God's power. This is David recognizing God's power. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind. Oh, Lord God. David recognizes that this is bigger than him. This is bigger than just a nation. This is an instruction for mankind, which is to say David recognized this is for everyone to come. Certainly Jesus is. Verse 20, and what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise 
and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth, whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself, your people Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house and do as you have spoken. And, and David goes on and on. He, we see that his response here is one of humility, one of worship, that he humbles himself. He says, Lord, who am I that you would, that you would fulfill this promise in me? Who am I that you would raise up a nation and an heir for me? Who am I that you would bless me and appoint me to be the heir over your people? David understood, much as God had said through Nathan, that God was the one who established him. God raised him up. David was a shepherd in the fields tending sheep before the Lord blessed him, before the, the Lord anointed him and appointed him to be the ruler over his people. David recognizes, God, this isn't because of anything that I've done. It's not because I was good enough. It's not because I was smart enough. It's not because I was great enough, mighty enough, powerful enough. Lord, this is because of you and for you. And so to you be the glory. And the truth is, that's the, the posture of worship. That's the, the right response. When we recognize that God has fulfilled all of his promises, that the same God who gave us the promise has fulfilled it and remains faithful and true to his word. When we recognize that to be true in our lives, the only right response is to worship him is to bow ourselves humbly before him, to bear witness to what he has done, to walk by faith with him, to work for his kingdom and to do his good works that he's created us for, just as we see in the life of David. Now, David was a complicated guy. As we read through the story of David, we recognize David was, he was not by any means a perfect man. And in fact, we're going to go on to read in the chapters that follow just beyond this of what is perhaps David's greatest failure, the whole incident with Bathsheba. David was a complicated guy, a flawed figure in every way. He was not a perfect man. He was not the, 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 the supreme, the ultimate, the perfect leader. And yet, because he was a man after God's own, uh, God's own heart, God established him. And through him, God blesses the nation, not because of anything that was good about David, but because it was God's good purpose and God's will to work through David. May we recognize that it's not because of anything that's good about us that we've been saved from our sin. It's not because you were good enough that God looked down and he said, oh, I need, I need her. Oh, yeah. Oh, everything that she brings to the table. I need all, so, I, so I'm going to save, oh, and, and I see him, and I see, I see my brother over here, and what he's, and oh, I, I, I need that. God's not collecting us as though we are pawns or pieces somehow that add to what he's missing. In fact, the Lord says to the psalmist that he needs nothing. In Psalm 55, I believe it is, that God says, 
if I had need of something, I wouldn't tell you because he doesn't need us. God doesn't bless us and save us because he needs us. Rather, it's his will. It's, he gets the glory in saving us, in redeeming us. His goodness, his mercy, his grace, his power is revealed all the more in saving us from our sin. God receives glory when we turn to him in faith. And just as David responds here in worship, may our response be one of worship, one of submission, one of humility, one that says, Lord, I recognize your hand of blessing on my life. I recognize your goodness at work. I recognize that it's not because of anything that I've done, but rather because of who you are, that you have saved me. And may we turn our hearts and our lives to him And much like David says, Lord, may your work be done forever. May we say, Lord, in my life, may you reign and rule forever as we submit to him. If there's never been a moment and a time when you have surrendered your life to Jesus, where you have submitted to him by faith, where you have in faith humbled yourself saying, Lord, I want to turn from my sin and turn to you as my Savior, then then I pray that you would make today the day. Just as the people cried, save us now, that today would be the day that you say, Lord, save me. Save me from my sin. God, I turn to you, not because I want something from you, not because I see Jesus as a means to some other blessing, but because I recognize Jesus is the blessing. And in Jesus, I have everything. And so may we turn to him in faith today. And if you're ready to surrender your life to Jesus, if you're ready to call on him as Savior and Lord, even today, in a moment when we enter into this time of response, we want to offer you the opportunity to commit your life to him. And so as we sing the song, our staff will be standing here at the front. Brad and I will be standing here. And and we would love nothing more than to pray with you and walk you through that prayer of commitment that you might surrender your heart to the Lord, that you might confess him as Lord and Savior. Turn from your sin. Turn to Jesus. If you're ready to do that, then even as we sing, we encourage you to step out, step into the aisle, make your way forward, visit with us. Perhaps if God has spoken to you in some way today and and you recognize that the, the right response is to humble yourself before him in worship, then we want to encourage you to make this your moment to make this your moment where you respond in obedience and worship to the Lord. You can even use the steps of this stage as an altar of sorts where you meet with God, where you would bow your heart before him and say, Lord, I humble myself before you. I, act, I ask that you would do your work in my heart forever, Lord. Keep leading me, keep guiding me. However God is speaking to you today, I encourage you to respond in obedience to him. And as we prepare for that moment where we where we respond in obedience and submission, we want to have a moment of prayer here, a prayer acknowledging God's power, acknowledging his provision, his goodness, and humbling ourselves as a response before him. So would you bow your head with me and close your eyes? And even as I lead us in a corporate moment of prayer here, acknowledging God's goodness, I encourage you to respond privately to him. And so, Lord, it is with hearts full of gratitude and thanks, much like we see in David's response, that we turn to you. 
Lord, we recognize that it's not because of anything good in us. It's not because of anything worthy, not because of our merit, not because of our work, but rather, Lord, because of your promise and your faithfulness to your covenant that you have, that you have brought salvation to us. And so we look to you today, God. We ask you to continue to move in our hearts. We thank you that we can trust you by faith, knowing that when we believe in Jesus, we have everything. The ultimate fulfillment of all your promises found in him. And so, Lord, we look to Jesus by faith today. Move in our hearts as we respond now to you. And all this we pray in the name of Jesus.